Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, welcome to another Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon and alongside me this week is the Snooker Scene editor, Clive Everton. Just before we start, you can of course subscribe to Snooker Scene. If you're not already a subscriber, go to our website, snookerscene.co.uk and follow the details there. This week we're going to be talking about our new ebook, Snooker Scene's 50 Classic Matches. This is a, a compendium of the series we do in the magazine. We've done 50 of them, so they're collated together and Clive's written some new introductions uh, to each of the various eras and we're going to spend today talking about uh, just picking out a few of the matches. We can't do all 50, otherwise uh, we'd be here all week, but we're going to pick a, a few of the matches out. I'm going to start with the first one, actually, which was the 1972 World Championship final, Alex Higgins against John Spencer here in Birmingham. Clive, what are your memories of that one? It was quite extraordinary because this was a match that changed everything as far as the snooker world was concerned. In those days, the World Championship lasted the whole season. Uh, every match was three days minimum, but towards the end it was a week. So Alex Higgins and John Spencer uh, pitched up at um, uh, Selly Park British Legion, which was a, a down at hill club in the suburbs of Birmingham, to play a best of 73 frames final for the world title. Uh, Higgins uh, had only just come through by the skin of his teeth. He'd beaten Rex Williams 31-30. Those were the days, weren't they? <laughs> in, in the semi-finals at, at, at Bolton. Um, but um, he was, was always had the initiative in the final against, against Spencer. And um, the, the conditions were pretty basic. Uh, it's the one. It was the one and only time when the local referee, or, or at least one of the local referees, was making such a hash of it that uh, uh, linesmen had to be appointed <laughs> <laughs> on, on, on either side of the table. Um, the, the the seating was on, on beer crates. Um, the whole place was was packed. Um, and uh, of course, the only light anywhere was over the was over the table, the the old trough trough shaped uh, shade. Um, the key to the match was was Higgins winning the Thursday night session six nil, um, and in the end he, he won by he won by six frames. So 
um, that changed everything. Um, it, it was quite a milestone for me because it was the first time that the, the Daily Telegraph agreed to take a snooker report. Um, and there's no doubt about it that, that Higgins was so clearly um, unique or highly unusual um, that he, he attracted press coverage. And the week was such a success uh, in, terms of, in terms of the crowd and the publicity that, that, that it got that um, a company called West Nally um, decided to offer um, money and a sponsor uh, to um, cover the 1973 World Championship uh, compress it into a, a fortnight uh, and this happened at City Exhibition Halls Manchester so the Higgins-Spencer uh, final was um, a, a, a real point of departure for snooker. Yes and I think uh, we hear complaints about conditions these days but uh, I think uh, some of the current players maybe don't know they're born because it, it, it was uh, real sort of basic stuff wasn't it but it sounds very exciting to have been there to have witnessed it, it must, have been, must have been fantastic. Well we realised that something extraordinary was, was, was happening um, there was a, 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 a power. There were, it was an era of power cuts around about that time of uh, time of year, and I remember there was one of the evening sessions. It might have been might have been the second evening. W was played just with mobile generators, and th this was much reduced light over the table. And I thought, well, they're never going to be able to play in this. But of course, it, it made no difference whatsoever. <laughs> Well, one of the sessions I know this because I read it in snooker scene was uh, was actually delayed because Spencer John Spencer was stuck in the lift in his hotel because there was a power cut, so he was sort of half an hour late. But thankfully, he wasn't uh, wasn't docked any frames because it wasn't his fault. Let's move on to uh, another match that we cover in the in the book. This book is uh, Snooker Scene's fifty classic matches, available on the Amazon Kindle store. If you search uh, for that, uh, nineteen seventy eight. This was the first World Championship properly covered by the BBC Television, and Fred Davis at the age of sixty four reached the semi-finals. Now, of course, he'd been world champion in the post-war era, um, as, of course, his, uh, his brother uh, Joe was world champion before the Second World War. But uh, this was the first sort of TV, I guess, a big TV moment, wasn't it, in the, in the new era, the first world championship covered by the BBC, and he was a real star. Yes, and, of course, you, you, it's just unimaginable now that anybody could reach the world semi-finals at the age of 64. But he, he was... Such a good player, Fred. He had so much craft um, that he, he was he was able to comp compete to the highest degree uh, at that time. And his semi-final opponent was uh, a South African, Perry Mons, who was a terrific potter, um, uh, but not much uh, control positionally. And it, it was a very it was a very tight match indeed. Uh, and um, Fred's elder brother Joe, who of course was world champion for twenty years, he was he was watching and um, just turning this way and that in his seat, uh, supporting supporting his brother. And uh, tragically, um, he was taken ill that night um, and went back to London and. Uh, had an operation and he died a few months later but I was always pleased that, that Joe actually saw the crucible because he'd done so much spade work in setting up the world championship uh, playing in it and indeed monopolizing it 
um, that, 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 that it was good to, to, for him to see what snooker had become. Um, I, I, remember, I remember Fred saying uh, afterwards that he, he fell away a bit in the, in the final session and this was because he, he didn't notice that um, they were playing consecutive sessions, afternoon and evening. They'd always played morning and evening or two afternoons or, 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 or whatever. And um, Fred uh, always, it was customary then for players to uh, dress in, in tuxedos for evening sessions, but lounge suits for afternoons. And Fred hadn't brought his tuxedo with him, so he spent the entire interval between the afternoon and the evening session going back to the hotel, coming back to the venue, and going straight on the table, whereas I'm sure he would have played a bit better uh, if he'd been able to just get on his spine in his dressing room. Um, he also had a few things to say about Perry Mons' style. He said he was very, very awkward to play because the colours were never on their spots. <laughs> and he just, when he was playing safe, he suddenly found there was nothing to get behind. So um, it, it, it was a triumph for the unorthodox, but... Let's not forget what a terrific potter that, that Mons was. Of course, the one fact everyone knows about Perry Mons is he won the Masters uh, without making it a 50 break. But but Fred Davis, pretty incredible, wasn't he? He, he last qualified for the Crucible at the age of 70. He was still a professional into his late 70s. I know it was a, a different time, but that is remarkable, isn't it, to, to have been a, a professional at any sport for basically about 50 years. Well, he, he, he loved to play. That was the top and bottom of it. OK, let's move on to the 1980s now, of course, uh, very much the era of Steve Davis. But he didn't have it all his own way. And uh, I guess the first, apart from the Tony Knowles reverse in 1982, the first sort of real high-profile reverse he had was in the 1983 UK Championship final against that man, man again, Alex Higgins. And, of course, just over 10, 11 years on from his first world title, the, the professional game had been transformed. And this was a real high-profile meeting, wasn't it, of two complete oppos opposites. Yes, at that time Higgins seemed to be in decline. Uh, he, he was also having problems with his marriage. But in some amazing way, early in that tournament, um, his marriage was sorted out, albeit temporarily. Um, and he came through to the final and uh, it looked as if he was going to get absolutely slaughtered because uh, Dave, Davis won the first session 7-0. But uh, Higgins stuck at him and stuck at him and in the end beat him, 16-15. Uh, what, what a gritty, tenacious opponent Higgins was. It seems he was sort of at his best, wasn't it, when he, when he back was to the wall like that. And, and particularly against someone like Davis, who obviously was the, the model professional. I don't think anyone would ever accuse Alex Higgins of being a model professional. But he was a, an unbelievable fighter, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, he, he he brought all those qualities to, to to that final. The reason I bring that one up, apart from the fact that it was a, a great match, is that in a way it was a precursor to what was to happen eighteen months or so later. We we know what the match is; it's coming. It's the nine eighty five World Final against Dennis Taylor, where again Steve was in front, won the first session seven nil, was eight nil up, and we know what happened at the end. As Dennis won. On the final black. I mean, there's been, you know, it's been the anniversary year. Although every year seems seems to be an anniversary, <laughs> seems to be an anniversary for it. But you were there, Clive, at the Crucible. Um, what was it like to be there for that incredible finish? Well, it, it, it was 
just in, incredibly dramatic. It was very late, of course. Uh, it, it was after midnight. Um, the, the match itself um, was not that special uh, uh, up to the final session. In fact, it's, I think it's the only world final that, that has not produced that didn't produce a single century break. But um, Davis always seemed as if he, he was going to win, but he, he could never get clean away. Um, apart, that is, from the first session. He won the first session 7-0. He, he won the uh, first frame of the second, ses second session, so it was 8-0. But, but Dennis Taylor w was a, a very tenacious uh, uh, opponent. And he kept close enough to put doubt in, in Davis's mind. And um, when it when it came to the uh, to, to to the to the climax of the match, they'd both pretty much gone. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the 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 it showed that you know it doesn't have to be a terrifically high standard to be exciting mm. because there were shots being mishit. But I, I think that I think that Taylor won because. He was just—he was just a bit braver in in the closing stages. There was a terrific brown that he potted, which was, which was neck or nothing stuff, and um, it, it, it was it was simply a, a, a fantastic a, a fantastic occasion. I think the, the I think the last twelve shots of that match is the most dramatic sequence of shots that Snook has ever seen. Mm. Stephen, in his book that was out this year, interesting, made a big play of a green that he missed, I think, at 9-1. Is that just his way of sort of coping all these years later with, with missing, missing that black, or, or is there something in that, do you think? Well, maybe that green, when he was miles ahead, it, it, it just sowed the first seed of doubt. But um, I have a theory, actually, that, that, that he might not have lost to Taylor from 8-0 up if he hadn't lost earlier to Higgins from 7-0 up. And uh, it, I think it was the fear of going through that again which might have inhibited his game in, in some way. OK, we're going to skip back actually now to 1983 because uh, famously Cliff Thorburn made the first Crucible 147 against Terry Griffiths. But, uh, of course, that match uh, took a while, I think it's fair to say, to be resolved. It was nine minutes to four in the morning, the latest ever finish at the Crucible. And you were still there, Clive, at the end. I, I, I was. It was quite eerie because <laughs> for, for, the, for the only time that the, the cameras were, were switched off, uh, it was it was a standing joke among the the cameramen that, that, that there was a, a sort of subdued cheer used to go up when it got to midnight and they were on double time, <laughs> but but uh, when when it got to two o'clock and three o'clock that was just just a bit too much, but uh, it 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 was an extraordinary match. Uh, by the time it finished, it was. It seemed a very long time since Thorben had made his maximum <laughs> in, in, in the first in the first session, and uh, although it was nine minutes to four when when it finished, um, I think it's only fair to say that, that we had an overrun with the previous match. John Spencer and Eddie Charlton didn't finish till nine o'clock, so it wasn't as if the uh, final session took eight hours or something. It took pl took plenty of time, but mm. uh, but not eight hours. How many people were still there watching? Uh, I would say about a hundred. Wow! And how many were, were awake? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it, it was so it was so dramatic because mm. I remember Thorburn missing a black along the the, the the black rail, which he would have won thirteen nine if he potted that. But of course, it went went all the way to thirteen twelve. 
Okay, we're going to move on. By, by the way, we will we will have a match soon where that Steve actually wins. But he didn't win this one. This next one we're going to talk about, which was the 1990 UK final, and I, I spoke to Phil Yates about this on on a, a recent podcast because this to me was sort of symbolic of the, of the passing of the torch because he was of course up against Stephen Hendry. Hendry was already world champion and in fact already beaten Davis in the previous year's UK final, but this one went the distance. And uh, I remember at the, at the Guildhall they they came they introduced for the last session to Tina Turner simply the best, which of course they were. Well, yes, uh, and it, it, I think it's always dramatic where you have uh, a young pretender versus the the established star, the 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 the, the, the man versus the coming man, and um, this this clash between Higgins and Davis epitomised that. It went all the way. To, it went all the way to the last frame. I remember Hendry played a terrific rest shot in. I think it was the last frame, but one. Hmm. Clearing up and um, but 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 it, it was it, it was so good and it, it kept it kept Davis in contention for the number one spot for, for for some time yet after he'd been through quite a lean spell. But eventually, as the nineties wore on, he had to accept that he was no longer top dog. Which, when you've been top dog for ten years, that must be very tough to take. Well, it happens to them all, doesn't it? Uh, it, it, it happens it, not just in snooker, but other sports. You know. Tiger Woods, you know, injuries and all, and all the rest of it, but something's gone upstairs as well, I think. Mm. But also, Hendry, he did play a different game, didn't he? He was far more attacking, and, and he, he sort of, that's how he came through and started to take all these tournaments. It wasn't the, the old cautious way of playing. No, no. I, I, think, I think that Steve Davis was the archetypal percentage player, uh, whereas Hendry would... Uh, stake much more on his long potting to get in with a long pot and win the frame in, in a single visit. Uh, Hendry once once said to me that, that that if he'd won his fair share of scrappy frames, he'd have won even more titles, and that there may be there may be something in that. Let's move on then to Stephen Hendry's uh, golden years, in particular the, the 1992 World Final. Of course, he had all those dramatic battles with Jimmy White, but the two that people remember there was that one. And of course, 1994 as well, which went to the deciding frame. But but 92, I think, is, again, is sort of symbolic of of Jimmy's uh, sort of crucible experience, if you like, because he looked like he was going to win, didn't he? He was 14-8 up, playing really well, and then lost 10, 10 on the spin. Or to put it another way, Hendry won 10 yeah. on the spin. Yeah. Uh, it, it was he was 14-8 down, and in the next frame, we were still in the afternoon session. Uh, Hendry took on an absolutely death-defying Brown from its spot when he was playing out of the jaws of the middle pocket. He would have lost the frame had he missed it, but he just rolled it in as calm as you like. And I remember seeing seeing Jimmy White's face at the end of the set. He looked very thoughtful as he as he left the arena because fourteen eight, you think you've almost won. Fourteen ten, well, you know, it's only four frames. This is the genius, I think, of the World Championship because if you say to Jimmy White at the start of the match, after three sessions, you're gonna be fourteen ten in front, you'll think, Brilliant, that's that's fantastic. But when you've been fourteen eight in front and it's fourteen ten, as you say, that bit of doubt comes in. You've got a couple of hours before the final session, and when you've already lost world finals, never been world champion, it's all got to build up in your mind, doesn't it? Doubt is the biggest opponent of them all. There we are. And of course, <laughs> they went on to have many more battles, 93, session to spare, then 94. I mean, that for, for Jimmy White fans, the ultimate signal because he had a clear chance in that decider, and I guess everything that happened before, again, came into his mind. 
yes, it, it, I think he, in a way, had a little bit too much time to think. Uh, he he actually had to get um, the, the the half butt out to play a shot, and there, this and he got the shot all right, but it, it sort of broke his flow, and. It, when he, he stood over this black from his spot, which was absolutely dead basic, maybe he wasn't quite in the zone as he had been. Anyway, it was a, it was a terrible miss, and that was the nearest that he ever got to winning the title. It's got to be said, though, you look at the... He was in six finals. You look at the players who beat him, Davis and Hendry and John Parrott, you know, three all-time greats. In a way, you, you, you could say it's no disgrace, but I guess it's the accumulation of having been in six, the law averages you feel he should have won at least one? Well, I, I think the, the, the public thought, uh, and, and indeed within snooker, a lot of people thought that when he, he, he got to the, the 91 final uh, and he wasn't playing Hendry and he wasn't playing <laughs> Davis, uh, um, it, 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 it was going to be his turn. But he was playing John Parrott. And in that first sa- session, John Parrott, played snooker about as well as it could be played. He won the session 7-0 and he nursed that lead and he won by seven. Mm. The the Hendry-White rivalry I think is fascinating, again because they're sort of opposite people, Hendry like Davis, model pro, Jimmy we know, a bit of a Jack the Lad, but it, it, it sort of sustained the interest in snooker didn't it, post the sort of boom of the of the 80s, it was still, these are high profile matches. Yes, I, 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 th- I think... I think people make too much of a, a, a supposed decline uh, in interest in snooker in the 90s. Uh, the, the way I always describe it, in, in the 80s, um, snooker was on honeymoon with the general public. Absolutely, you know, the, the public couldn't get enough of snooker. Uh, but in the 90s, when it was more familiar, they still liked it. Uh, and the, the viewing figures were still good. In fact, they've always been pretty good in, in, in relation to... Uh, the circumstances of the time. I think I'm right in saying that the 94 final that went to decide got something like 13 million viewers. So, I mean, that's certainly not too shabby. Now, we're going to move on to, to a Steve Davis victory. He'll be pleased to know if he's listening. And this was an unexpected one because he was supposedly past his prime. It was the 1997 Masters, and he was uh, just about to turn 40. He hadn't been well before the tournament. No one really gave him much chance of doing much. In, he got to the final, played Ronnie O'Sullivan, who was already established as a top player. He was 8-4 down, and he came back to win 10-8, and I think that, that was quite cheering for a lot of people. Of course, when Steve was at the top, a lot of people wanted him to lose, but as he slowly declined, suddenly they wanted him to win. Yes, uh, the, the, there, was a, uh, there was something of that about it. Uh, of course, um, uh, one, of the, one feature of the, that final which I remember was that O'Sullivan started with two centuries, and it looked as if he was just going to pot all the balls every frame, and then we had a streaker. Yeah. And uh, as Davis said at the time, it broke the spell. Mm. Um, uh, O'Sullivan was still uh, in front. Um, what was he in front? 8-6? Eight, 8-4. Eight, four. Eight, four, that's right. 8-4. Eight, eight, uh, but uh, Davis played some great safety, great tactical game. And also, you know, when he got the opportunity, you know, he was able to deliver some, some frame, frame-clinching breaks. 
And uh, in the end, I don't think Ronnie knew whether he was on foot or horseback <laughs> because Davis came through to win 10-8. I think there was another element to it as well. Steve, he'd won the Masters twice, which that's great, but for him, maybe not as, not as great because, of course, six world titles, six UK titles. And he said that he thought one of the reasons he hadn't performed that well at Wembley over the years was because he was a Londoner, and yet quite often the crowd were for the other guy. But actually what happened in this match, you would expect them to be mainly for O'Sullivan, the young, dashing new player. But of course, a lot of them were, were snooker fans and they wanted Steve to come through and suddenly the crowd were on his side. And maybe, maybe that was a factor because Ronnie, even then, wasn't that used to not being the favourite. No, that's, a, that, that, that's an interesting point. But I, I think that Davis had a, an extra surge of energy when he thought, after all this time, I'm in contention again. You know, I could win something here. You know, I, th I think I think it, it inspired him. We're going to stay at Wembley for the 2001 Masters final. Another entry in our Snooker Scenes 50 Classic Matches ebook available on the Amazon Kindle Store. In case I haven't said that already, this was Paul Hunter, the great Paul Hunter, against Fergal O'Brien. Fergal, I guess, uh, some, something of a surprise finalist, uh, although he had already been British Open champion, and he was six two up and heading for victory, and then Paul Hunter. Stormed back in great style. He had something like four centuries in the final session. One ten nine, the first of three Masters victories for him. That was an. Ex I remember being there. That was a really exciting evening. Well, it, it, it was a terrific match because uh, it looked as if O'Brien was going to win quite comfortably. He was six two up at the at the interval, uh, seven three early in the evening, and then uh, Hunter made four four centuries in 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 five frames. Uh, of course, the the the, the newspapers, particularly the tabloids, uh, had a, an absolutely heaven-sent story in, in that um, uh, Hunter disclosed at his at his victory press conference that during the interval, he and his fiancée had made very good use of uh, uh, the, the the room they shared, and he felt altogether more relaxed for the evening session. Well. He played uh, absolutely great and he went all the way down to the wire. Uh, O'Brien could even have won the, the, the deciding frame, but he didn't. Uh, Hunter won three Masters in all and it was just a tragedy for, for, for Snooker as well, of course, uh, much more for his family that he died at the, the tragically early age of 27. Yes, absolutely awful. It was interesting though that the, uh, the the remark he made, he said, you know, we went to the hotel, put Plan B into operation, but it was entirely innocent. It's not like he'd thought it through and contrived it, but that actually, I think more than winning the Masters, that sort of bit of human interest actually made him a star, didn't it? And very suddenly, I mean, he was on the front, that was the main story in the Daily Star, front page. That maybe says a lot about our newspaper <laughs> culture, but it, it just, I, get it was, I guess it was a way of being more than just a snooker player, he cut through and it was something that sort of resonated with people and, and he was like that, like Jimmy, he's a very sort of human person and, and very easy to relate to. Yeah, and uh, he, he had a very a very attractive fiancé, later his wife, Lindsay. Mm. Uh, some papers refer to him as snooker's answer to Posh and Bex. Uh, he, he, he was certainly... Uh, he, he certainly had a manner and a personality which made you warm to him. We're going to stay with Paul, actually. Uh, this was a match he looked like he was going to win. It was the reverse, really, of what happened at, at the Masters. 2003 World Championship semi-final. He entered the final session 15-9 in front against Ken Doherty. 
and uh, Ken came back to win 17-16. You commentated, didn't you, on, on that final session? I think you, you regard it as one of the best sessions you've ever seen. I, I, I thought it was it was just terrific. Um, went into the commentary box uh, <laughs> at, at, at half past two. I thought, well, very likely I'll be out by three. Uh, <laughs> but but Doherty won one frame after another. Um, Hunter missed one glaring chance as the pre- as the pressure came on because he was so far in front, um, at 15, 15 nine. That it, as soon as you have the thought, wouldn't it be terrible if mm. uh, uh, <laughs> that, that that the doubt that that puts in your mind, the the the, the pressure that it that, that, that it adds to already you know the, the, the ordinary pressure of the match. Well, it, it, it's it's very very hard. It's very very hard to take, and I remember also that um, we, we we went completely through final score on, <laughs> on, on 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 BBC. That was shunted on unceremoniously onto <laughs> BBC Two, and uh, you know we finally came out. I finally came out of the box. At, well, I think it was about quarter past six, but it, that was a terrific a terrific match. I mean, terrible terrible for Hunter, but. You know, great recovery, very gritty, very tenacious stuff from Doherty. My memory of that was that uh, Trevor Baxter, who, was, who well, still is a journalist, but he, he was a regular on the Stuka circuit, he he always went to football on a Saturday afternoon, so he asked me to look after his work, which was about five newspapers, and he said, oh, don't worry, you'll have plenty of time, because Paul, <laughs> Paul will win, you know, by about three o'clock, you'll have plenty of time to write it. I've never done so much rewriting. It started out, you know, Paul Hunter coasted into the into the <laughs> World Championship final, then it was... Paul Hunter was given a, a, some some trouble before, and eventually, of course, you know, Ken, Ken came back and won. But what the other thing I remember about it was the graciousness between the players. You know, there was a, a hug backstage. Paul, whatever you know, disappointment he had, wished him well for the final. Ken, as we know, is is always gracious, win or lose. It was sporting as well as a great sort of theatre. Very, very good. Yeah, Hunter was a good lad. Mm, yeah. Okay, we're going to move on to an interesting sort of modern rivalry, really. Ronnie O'Sullivan and Mark Selby, they've played several times, several high-profile matches. They've both beaten each other, but the one I've chosen is uh, the 2007 UK semi-final at Telford. It went to a decider, and Ronnie came out and made a maximum. And he put the fact that he won the match and kept his sort of focus together to the fact that when he sat, because we know that Mark Selby is a slower player than Ronnie, and Ronnie doesn't necessarily enjoy playing him. But he said he sat in his chair with a, with a teaspoon and he counted the dots on the teaspoon to keep his his mind going, which sounds kind of crazy, but it worked. He won and he won with the maximum. He did uh, after playing what I would describe as against the grain all day. Uh, I mean, he he was he was battling, he was competing, uh, he, he was he was short of his best, he, partly because Selby wasn't allowing him to get into a rhythm. But in the end, as you say, David. O'Sullivan came through with that terrific one four seven in the deciding frame. I, th- I, I'm not, I can't speak for Ronnie, but I suspect he doesn't exactly punch the air when he sees that he's got to play Mark Selby because, crucially, Selby enjoys playing him. He doesn't fear him, and he knows how to beat him. Obviously, Ronnie has beaten him several times, but we remember their world final. You know, Mark, Mark knew how to beat him. Well, also, uh, Mark Selby tends to produce his very best when he's a few frames behind. And for most players, if O'Sullivan gets three frames in front, we'll say, he runs away with it. But it doesn't seem to happen with, when he plays Selby. Mm. Even so, though, to finish with a maximum, you know, that, that, that is sort of t- trademark O'Sullivan style and panache and, you know, box office, isn't it? 
Yeah. Oh yes, yes. Uh, yeah. They're, they're, they're a good contrast, actually. Uh, Sullivan and Selby. Selby is a supremely well-manufactured player, uh, a percentage player. Uh, Sullivan is this uh, inspirational creature who can sort of do any do anything on a snooker table. It seems. You know, they're a good match. We're going to return to Steve Davis, another one for him. This is 2010, the World Championship, and again, he was given absolutely no chance because he was playing John Higgins, who'd had a great season, went into the World Championship as one of the, the favourites. In fact, uh, he was defending champion, and it's, of course, best of 25, so it's not like he's, he's playing a best of seven. Very little chance, but again, he came through, and this, I think, was even more unlikely than the, than the Masters victory because by 2010, all logic, I mean, he was in his 50s, all logic dictated, you know, he... He did well to qualify, never mind to, to, to have this incredible victory over John Higgins. Steve Davis loved snooker, and uh, long after the, the time when other players in his position uh, would have retired, he, he just kept on, not expecting to, to do a, a great deal, but just playing each match on its merits. And lo and behold, you, you know, on the odd day, you know something something marvelous happens and and this was marvelous um, i remember one little little detail about that is that uh, in the final session um, uh, steve had an ocular migraine that's 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 like having a starburst in the in the middle of your vision um, which is how i get them actually mm. but it, it, his starburst was just a bit to the side but it's very off putting and yet still he 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 managed he managed to win and it was it was a great one for the golden oldies, that. Yeah, and, and after he'd won, he won, he went up to the BBC studio, which is in the Winter Gardens, up, just up the road from the Crucible, and uh, people parted, you know, it was like the Red Sea parting, and people applauding, and uh, it meant a lot to him. I know he got quite emotional as, as he walked up there, you know, and all these people applauding. Many of the people, I guess, in the 80s, as I said before, wanted him maybe to lose, but I suppose by then he'd earned respect from everyone. I mean, you know, he is... A legendary figure now, isn't he, Steve? You know, he's not on the tour anymore, but he is uh, a figure who's earned respect. One of the games, well, the games, the games' leading statesman. Absolutely, and it was an incredible, incredible victory. And uh, I think that was actually the last time he played at the Crucible. He, he did, uh, he did play in the qualifiers this year. In fact, won his first match uh, against Jamie Cope on the black. Thirty years, of course, after losing to Dennis. Uh, the final match we're going to talk about. This is the, the really the new era. It's Judd Trump and Ding Jun Wee. They played. Uh, 2011 semi-final at the World Championship, 17-15 to Judd Trump. Two very, very exciting players. Well, uh, yes, from from the modern era, um, we took a special interest in, in in Judd Trump here at Snooker Scene because we we run a, a, a tournament winners feature um, each month on, on the amateur game, the junior game. And you know, there there was Trump every month, you know, winning some winning something or other, and it was it was obvious he, even when he was eleven, twelve, thirteen that he was going to be something special, and uh, indeed he has proved to be something special. And Ding uh, has been the flag bearer for for, for Chinese snooker. Uh, he he's he's not won the world title yet, but he's won. A lot of ranking t titles. Six, is it or eight? Eleven, I think. Eleven, yeah. eleven. I do him an injustice. <laughs> uh, 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 and uh, uh, in doing that, he adds a, a very valuable international dimension to the game. In addition, of course, to just being a, 
a first-rate technician, just a first-rate player. Trump, though, was playing on inspiration, wasn't he? Because he just won the China Open, came to the Crucible full of confidence, beat Neil Robertson, the defending champion, first round, and cut an absolute swathe through the draw. The other thing about the match is that we've, a lot of the matches we talked about have been contrasts, different personalities, playing the game a different way. These two, certainly in that match, played the game the same way. They attacked, and at times it was like an exhibition. The quality was, was so good. And it just shows that the game is in really good hands when you've got players like this at the top. Yes, uh, and uh, the, the, they're good. They're good not just from the way they play, but the way they behave. They're good role models as well. Mm. Ding's never been in a world final. There's still plenty of time. He's in his twenties, but not everyone takes to the crucible, do they? You know, some players who may have expected to come through and win it before haven't done. What does he have to do other than beat everyone <laughs> at, the, at the crucible? Is, is 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 it a mental thing? Do you think, or or or, or do you think his time will come? It, it's it's just very very difficult to say. Uh, I, I think that he he's better now at coping with the pressure of expectation. Uh, he's so good when he plays in China that the, the Chinese fans think, well, he, he, he should be winning everything. Why why isn't why isn't he beating everybody? Uh, but of course, it's it's never as it's never as simple as that. I, I, I think that he he's able to cope with that pressure of expectation um, better than he used to. But it's still a, a, a tremendous undertaking to win a world title at the Crucible. Absolutely. Well, uh, we've spoken of about ten or twelve matches here. There are fifty in the book. Fifty classic matches. Snooker scenes. Fifty classic matches. For one final time, available on the Amazon Kindle store, priced four ninety nine. If you live in the UK, we hope you enjoy it, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And we'll be back with another one very soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.